Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network, to the academic life. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of your channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Penny Wills, who is the president of the Rural Community College Alliance. Welcome to the show, Penny. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Christina. I am so glad you're here and that we get to talk about the extremely important role that community colleges play in higher ed. I wonder if to start off, you could tell us a bit about yourself, please. Sure, sure. Be glad to. Um, Don't want to bore anybody, but I think it's an interesting life um, in that I have had the opportunity in my life uh, as a first generation college student. I was Uh, In my generation, I was the first one to go to college, Um, and so I never thought college necessarily was for me, but I was very fortunate to have parents that were very, very supportive, Um, and my mother was adamant um, that we go, and both of them were adamant, um, that we go on to college, and so I did, Uh, and why I think it's interesting and why I, I'm very happy about it, even though I'm older now and I'm retired, um, and I got back into this role of being president of this wonderful association, National Association, I have had the chance to pursue my academic career all the way through my doctorate. And then from there, um, it pursued my field at every type of institution that is within the family of American higher education, with the exception of one, the proprietary schools. Um, And so I went to a regional university, University of Cincinnati, um, then Miami University in Ohio, um, and worked and have a degree also from a land-grant institution. Well, I've worked at three land-grant institutions and public-private, worked at Reed College for a while in Portland, Oregon. And then I discovered community colleges and went on and advanced my career there and have just retired in 2019 from my second presidency of a community college. Uh, The first one was in Iowa, Northeast Iowa Community College. And then the last one here was in Yavapai County, Arizona, um, and finally named Yavapai College, fantastic institution. But both of those were very rural. And so I thought I was retired for a year. And then the board of this association called me and said, would you help us and uh, be the president of this this association? And that's that's where I am right now. Uh, But that's not too bad for a first generation college student uh, to go through that. And I wouldn't, I quite honestly, Christina, I don't regret one day of my career. It, It's been a fantastic journey. And the beauty of community colleges, why I feel so passionate about them, is that there wasn't a day that I didn't feel like I could make a difference in students' lives. It's very student-oriented. And the students are very, very diverse uh, from the type of courses we offer, et cetera, and programs. And it's just exciting to be there. Can you share a little bit about what you what you chose as your field of study and how that prepared you for where you are now? <laughs> yeah, it might look a little bit different. Um, my first field of study was elementary education. Now, keep in mind, as I said, I was a first-generation college student. So 
uh, students, whether they like to admit it or not, are often shaped by those who are around them. Well, coming through 12 years of Catholic schooling, I thought, well, I can either become a nun, a nurse, or a teacher. Well, I like boys um, and had a boyfriend, so the nun went out. Um, <laughs> that was eliminated. Nurse, I cannot handle the sight of blood. I really can't. Um, my sister was a nurse and very good at it, but not me. And so I thought, well, I've got to go into teaching. That's all that I saw because I was in a small town, um, didn't know that. I was very good in math, but I was told by teachers constantly that you're not, you know, girls don't go into math. They aren't very good. Well, the studies show that they are very good, but I didn't get that word. Um, I wanted to be an astronaut. And uh, that was the only thing my mother said that I could not do because I didn't have 20-20 vision. And at that time, you had to have 20-20 vision to even be considered to be a flight pilot or, you know, any type of pilot to go on into becoming an astronaut. And that was really surprising to me. But um, so I went on and pursued a degree in elementary education. Quite frankly, um, it was security <laughs> that why I did that. Did I ever teach at the elementary level? No. I love education. Um, but those little kids scared me. I, I have no idea. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I just could not. It, those little kids just, it, it's such a responsibility uh, because in elementary, yeah, not only are you teaching content, you're shaping people's lives so much. Um, and so I thought, whoa, um, and I really don't know what to do with little kids. Now, college kids, I understood because you can discuss things with them and you can, you're, you're really pushing to have critical thinking skills and you better back up your opinions, um, et cetera. And you learn from a very diverse group of people. Um, and in a school, chances are those children all come from the same neighborhood. <laughs> and I really relish the diversity aspect of that um, and the ability to talk with students as an adult to an adult, um, nothing. And I commend, oh, do I ever respect highly elementary ed teachers, especially at this time with COVID, et cetera. What they're going through is amazing. So that was my first career. So while I was in college at University of Cincinnati uh, in my bachelor's program, I finished up everything, all my requirements in three years, and then had planned that when I did my year of student teaching, I would go back and take all my electives in a week area um, and really be ready to go out there and teach. Well, that senior year, I became much more involved in college activities, et cetera, and um, took an array of electives that just opened my mind up to a lot of things. Sociology was big and um, social psych was big. And very involved in student affairs work there. So in talking with one of my mentors there at UC, um, I didn't realize you could work at these places, even though obviously he was working. He was the vice president. <laughs> so uh, he introduced me to, you know, to get a master's from Miami University because I didn't want to move far away from home, which was in Cincinnati. And so I went up to Oxford, Ohio and did a master's in counseling. Uh, and then worked, uh, began my career in higher education. So I worked at Miami for a number of years and then went on to Michigan State to go ahead and finish up my doctorate in administration in higher education. Um, and then, you know, all that time, I worked all the way through my college career. Um, and so it was wonderful. But that, 
And when people see the elementary ed degree, they go, what, what happened here? Um, but it made sense out of a person who didn't know career development wasn't a big deal at that time. Uh, uh, and you were very much shaped by the people around you. I think it's very good. It's key that um, children today and older people, everybody, look outside yourself and see what's out there. Where are you comfortable? And thank heavens I had some very good mentors that took time with me and you know, exposed me to different fields and within education, which I love. I appreciate your take on um, early childhood ed. I have many relatives who, who teach small children, and I, too, am in awe of how you do that. It is definitely something you either are highly able and skilled to do, or you realize this is not something that you're going to be able to do well. And the children deserve the people who feel like, yes, I'm going to do this well. Um, so I appreciate that you, um, that you said that. Um, so you found your way into higher ed, and at first you were at four-year institutions? Correct. Correct. Yeah, I've worked at University of Cincinnati, um, which was, uh, you would call it a regional university at that time, nationally ranked, et cetera, but you know, it was UC, uh, Cincinnati, and then Miami University, another regional um, institution right up the road, and then Michigan State. Uh, and then... Yeah, I did my doctorate uh, from there, but I did my internship at University of Florida and then came back and then decided um, I looked at this one job opening and was recruited to come down to New Mexico. So I worked at New Mexico State University for three years, met my husband, and then we dealt with the whole thing of dual career marriages. <laughs> he was in IT at New Mexico State and was being recruited to Portland, Oregon. And so I waited a year and then went up. To, to join him up there. And that's when I um, joined the staff of Reed College, a private liberal arts college, typically ranked in the top 10 or 12 um, liberal arts colleges in the nation. That was a different experience for me because um, it, it's just a very different world. And not only because it's private, but also because it's very exclusive and it's also strong in the liberal arts. I had developed a very um, big respect or, you know, significant respect for liberal arts um, uh, and how to teach or not teach it, but how, to, you know, what the students were learning. But um, then from there, I went, um, I was recruited for the Dean of Students position at Portland Community College in Portland. And just don't regret that at all, going from four-year institutions um, to community colleges, which are very unique in the United States. Um, and not many countries have that and have marveled at that model that came, you know, that was developed here in the United States. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. Community colleges, uh, this, well, the earliest one was Joliet Community College or Joliet College up in um, Illinois, outside of Chicago. That was way back in 1903. Um, and the aspect of that was that it was a two-year college and that it would partner with a four-year college. That's where some people may refer to us as um, junior colleges. And junior colleges are part of community colleges, are part of that two-year college um, group, but they're not the same. I, a community college, a comprehensive community college, is truly much more complex. Um, and 
the idea be behind those community colleges and Truman really got, President Truman got behind this during his presidency to say, hey, a college, everybody in the United States should be within 50 miles of a college to be able to get there um, and to get their first two years of college as well as technical education. So you have two branches in these community colleges. Um, uh, one is the group that is going to transfer somewhere. Um, and they get such a strong foundation there. Um, the college that I was last president at at Yavapai College had more doctorates on their faculty than uh, the majority of uh, co you know, community colleges in the nation. It's, it's a fantastic learning experience. Uh, and... Not that well, doctorates are just one indicator of that, but just the effectiveness of teaching and uh, just all that. But anyway, you go into that and then you can transfer and all the credits transferred to any four-year colleges. And so we had a very, and I was very pleased to, to watch that um, because even in Iowa when I was there, we knew the students who started at a community college versus a four-year institution. And let's just take Iowa, for example. Um, if they started a community college and then transferred to Iowa State or University of Iowa or Northern Iowa um, University, our students would do better at the junior year after they had transferred. They would do better than the students who started at those four-year institutions in their freshman year. So I thought, I want and boy, did we have a good time advertising that, saying, hey, it's worth it. It's not second-class education by any means. And so here um, in Arizona, we tested the same thing. And I was so pleased. Not only are the community college students doing better when they transfer, after they transfer to a four-year institution here, but our own college where I was president hit the top GPA. So I was like, yeah, this is good. I'm a little competitive here. And so... Uh, <laughs> it sounds uh, like a healthy competition, though. Yeah. But it is wonderful because the students of these community colleges... Um, one, and I'll, I'll get back to it. They're so diverse and they, you know, the commitment is to students. Um, it's not research where the four-year institutions, many of them, especially the research institutions have that. Um, and the teachers are so dedicated and they are very good in their fields. So this is one half or not one half, one portion of the students in a community college or those that are going to transfer. The other part of the students are those that are not going to transfer. Well, they may in a different way, but they're for technical, career technical education. The welders, the auto tech, um, the 3D printer people, the electricians, um, the robotic people, um, the engineering techs, uh, all these people, they go into a technical field. And within two years, they can get a job. Um, and a very good job, <laughs> very good. Um, and so that, you know, for, well, for an estimate, just to give you an example, an engineering tech, um, if you are, an, for every engineer in the United States, 16 engineering techs support that person. And the engineering techs are what makes it really work. <laughs> so when the next time you see Elon Musk, um, you know, sending our astronauts up there, think of all the people that are behind Elon, um, the engineers, and then all the engineering techs. And so you have that. So that's another part of this. 
Then there's a third part, actually, that I forgot to mention. Um, those are just the credits where you get a transcript and either transfer, you automatically go into a job, et cetera. But then there's a continuing ed or non-credit side of the institution. And uh, it's amazing. You know, learning doesn't just stop. And we have all types of programs in community colleges to work with the community. And they can be fun courses. Um, they can be serious courses. Um, they can be workforce development courses. As an example, um, the CNC, um, Computerized Numeric Control, which used to be known more as manufacturing, hardcore manufacturing um, in the big industries, et cetera. Well, this is all done by computers now. And so a CNC person, um, and we were working in Dubuque at the time, and that was part of our, our district, college district. Um, they were stealing these operators from each other, um, the businesses were, and they needed more CNC operators. And they want, and so we brought about 12 to 15 of these businesses together and said, okay, now let's talk about how we want to design this curriculum. And we brought it up on both sides of the house. Some businesses only wanted one module, one module. You know, I just want da 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 da. I don't want a degree. I just need him to learn X. So we said, okay, that's fine. But then let's say a student you know, or worker X went in and learned that, but now he's really turned on to say, hey, I'd like to learn more. Well, we would, you know, if they would complete three of our modules over here on the non-credit, we would just um, turn that over on the credit side. And if that be, they would get credit for a course that we had in those that, you know, and so we developed that curriculum on both sides so that the person didn't lose any time. Um, but that third part is the non-credit. So it can be things as far as watercolor to, um, no, even I signed up for a number of them after, after I retired here because it was for senior citizens to go ahead and just learn about learning. And it was oh, ex exciting and how to keep yourself young. Um, and to be thinking and uh, be exposed to things. TED Talks, that's where I was very much introduced to TED Talks, but the discussion afterwards after we would watch some things was wonderful. Um, but it, it can be all types of things in there. So those are the three components. Now, that's just the academic side. <laughs> There's a whole other side beside that in community colleges with economic development. And you know, you've heard, especially in COVID, um, where how many how COVID has really affected the small businesses across the United States. Well, guess who has the small business development centers? Typically, they're at community colleges. They're linked with that. It's funded out of the Small Business Administration out of Washington D.C., then down to the states. But often they're with community colleges. So um, we do a lot of things with. Uh, we help the different towns and uh, cities here in our district with getting all the economic data for them. And then we help recruit businesses with them. Um, we help support those businesses. And so we work very much and very closely with those, um, the towns, the civic leadership, as well as corporate America and small businesses. And so that's another side of community colleges. So you can see that it's a very diverse operation um, and it's exciting because the end result, especially in rural America, you are so much into the fabric of the, of the community that you serve. And 
while the Yavapai County is an example, um, just one example, it's the size of Connecticut. Um, and we have loads of little towns, et cetera. They're all different, but they also share a lot of different things. But you think regionally, what can you do to go ahead and support those towns? And you're responsible for them. I, you're, as I said, you're in the fabric. Um, we're tax supported. So you know, even though we only get about 2 to 3% of our funding from the state, um, and then a portion of it does come from property tax, but that varies. And I don't think your listeners probably really would care how that budget is put together of a community college, but it can vary. But it's either tuition or a combination of tuition, property tax, or from state support. Um, and so you feel a very, at least we feel very accountable to our communities. Uh, Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I no, think no, no, listeners no. actually do care about the budget. Um, I've been following um, on social media quite a lot of threads um, about what's going on in higher ed right now. And students are acutely aware of how much it costs to go to school. And some of these discussions are, where does my money go? <laughs> um, yeah. And so when you bring up budget or how a school is funded, I think um, given what the sticker price is at most institutions now, I think in, um, students are far more interested in what an operating budget is at their uh, school than than the administrators realize. Yeah, yeah. And it's there. I, hopefully, let, well, let's just look at that. Um it is, I'm very proud that community college's tuition is so much lower, significantly lower than going to a public university. And as I said earlier, you get not only quality education, um, we've got the data show that you typically will do much better starting there in smaller classes um, with dedicated faculty that aren't doing research on the side, et cetera, but are right there who know their fields and tens, et cetera, and then transferring. Or, you know, on that one side of the house, you go ahead and um, learn technical skills. Um, and that is very much shaped by advisory committees of people in the field that are saying, no, this is what needs to be taught. And how do you keep current in that? Uh, and so you have that. So probably 80% of the budget is tied to personnel, meaning the faculty. And then you have all the support areas, whether it's student support areas like student affairs, where you have the academic counselors, you have financial aid people, you have admissions people, you have all these different people there um, to help the students. Or it's the business side of the house. Who's going to make sure that the lights go on? <laughs> and who makes sure that the IT works, the you know the laptops and any uh, of your broadband, anything? Who does all that? Well, that's a whole other group that you've got to pay as well, and you've got to have expertise in those areas. So whether we like to say it or not, um, higher education is a business as well. Now, I draw the line. Um, it shouldn't be proprietary <laughs> in the sense that we're not here to make money. Um, you keep that budget as you know as tight as you can, and you're very conscientious that you're accountable to your community and your constituents. Uh, and as opposed to, okay, how can I make money off of this? Proprietary schools work on a business model where they have to make funds or make a profit to pay their tax holders. Um, no, 
or they're not their tax holders, or um, well, yeah, they're account holders, and so the stockholders. And that, to me, just doesn't make it. That, that's something that is my personal viewpoint. Um, and so you have that, and you just as students, as they look at that, I, I think it's a wonderful deal that you can get at a community college. Now, the community colleges are lately, well, no, I wouldn't say that more and more are into that, but I was very fortunate at the last college I was at to have a very strong foundation, which sits on the side, supports, these are donors that support that college. And easily, I would say half our students are on, uh, get some type of funds to support their education through our foundation. Um, my husband and I have three different scholarships at that college to support students. Um, and you go ahead and you you work with donors who are passionate about education. And um, I think every one of our nursing students is on some type of scholarship there um, uh, because people very much believe in giving to nursing. Uh, so you have that foundation that also helps support students. Thank you for sharing all of that. It demystifies where does tuition money go? <laughs> yeah. And how does tuition money get set? Why do some people have scholarships and other people don't? It, it demystifies a lot. And is it fair to say that overall two years at community college is significantly less expensive than two years at a four-year college? Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's also, and that's at a public institution, which is then tax supported as well from the state, et cetera. When you look at private education, like where I was at, at Reed College, um, the tuition there back in the 80s was eh, $12,000 a year. That was in 1980. I can only imagine what it is now. I haven't kept up with it. Um, tuition in 2020 at Yavapai, I don't know the exact amount, but I would say it's probably 3000 you know, 6000 if you're looking at the whole year. But it's it's markedly different. <laughs> and we just always try to go ahead um, and help support our students. Now, currently you'll hear um, also about the College Promise Program. And unfortunately, some people really like to make it into a political situation. And I try to, and we live in the most conservative county in Arizona, which is saying a lot. Um and I was asked to speak of that. The College Promise Program is, mm, no, uh, community college tuition should be free. It should be funded by the feds, and that's it. Because, um, And you might say, oh, 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 you know, let's not get the federal government involved in that. Okay, I, I, I can appreciate that. But here's what we have. We've got to look back and see back in the 1940s um, is when high school became required <laughs> in public and free. <laughs> and if we think our forefathers or foremothers, et cetera, thought, well, this is a good thing to do because it's just the right thing to do. You know, yeah, everybody should be educated. Not exactly. You got to look and see what, what's happening in the workforce and in the economy at the time. At that time, American economy was switching from an agricultural to a manufacturing um, in fact, I just had a town hall with Tom Vilsack, who is coming in as, the again, the USDA secretary. And he gave us, a, in the 1950s, um, 130 million people were in the U.S. 2.5 million were farmers. Today, 
There's only 2 million um, people that are in farming. One to three of those are what we call, how did he put them, backyard farmers. (laughs) We have advanced agriculture so much to be so efficient that there's these big corporate farms. And the corporate farms will go ahead and, as he said, um, produce 90% of our food. So you have some farming, but agriculture is totally switched. And so you have that. And we, you know, you've heard about the information age, et cetera. We're switching out of manufacturing into an information age. That's already happened. Now we're moving on. And how do you go ahead and if you look at where, well, let's just take the recession, where, and not COVID, but the recession, but even COVID came into play there. Um, but it, during the recession, uh, you know, 2008 up to 12 or whatever year you want to pick there, they had that people who lost the jobs, et cetera, were ones who did not have a high school degree. <laughs> They really got hit hard. Um, where was the training? Where were the jobs going? And the people who had the education weren't affected that much. And you can look at all the charts, et cetera. So it's, again, back to what we do with our Regional Economic Development Center at the college. We're helping the town saying, hey, you're in a major transition. Um, and so where are the jobs of the future? Not just the future, but the present. And what type of training is needed? Um, it's not, you know, a person without a high school degree and now a person without at least two years of college, um, don't stand a chance. They're not going to get and, um, secure jobs. Um, do they know coding? Do they understand the computer? Um, how do they go ahead? Um, it just, yeah. How do they function in today's world and looking at the type of jobs that are needed, And you look at job reports out of the Department of Labor, and it's scary because we have such a shortage of workers in those fields. And so how do you go ahead and help people prepare for that? Well, you give them some free college to get that training. Because, again, with the diversity of community college students, we have students that are not just academically, yeah, they're fine. But financially, they're struggling. It's not unusual to have a student um, of all ages, um, from in high school, um, where they could take some community colleges while they're you know, classes while they're still in high school, all the way up to I think our student, our eldest student was in her nineties. <laughs> and you know, how do you go ahead and help them um, learn, et cetera, from that? And it's financially, these students, many of them had two and three jobs just to be able to afford to go ahead and have a family, life happened to them somewhere along the line, or high school wasn't what um, they really liked. Um, I loved our GED, the general ed um, diploma students. Um, They dropped out of high school because it just wasn't where they liked to be. Um, And they thrive at community colleges. Uh, And so you have all that diversity going on, but financially um, they need support. But it's why that College Promise Program is so important is twofold. One, the workforce, as I said, what's needed, what is in the workforce today, what are the jobs? But the other part is that, how would I say, um, it, it is the right thing to do. Uh, and how do we have an educated workforce? We know that with just 12 credits of college, 
you are less likely to be in prison <laughs> to go to, you are more likely to vote um, even it affects marriages <laughs> as far as hold it you, you get exposed to a variety of people um, the funny part for me as I mentioned earlier was 12 years of Catholic schooling well the good nuns I, I did get a very good education but I didn't know about anybody that wasn't Catholic <laughs> and being in a small farm, et cetera, you know, everybody, you know, was Catholic around me. And here I went to University of Cincinnati and God, there's Jewish people. There were black people. There were Asian people. I never saw any of these people before. Um, and, you know, they had opinions and they had different thought processes uh, and everything. And to be able to be with people, to appreciate that there's different perspectives and to learn from each other. That's the beauty of it. And at uh, Community College, we are definitely um, a very diverse student population. If you want to see where the ethnic minorities, for example, are, majority of them are in community colleges. Can you share with us what the Rural Community College Alliance is? I know you're the president of it. Can you share with us what it is and what it does? Yeah, yeah. It's a national organization. Uh, and it represents uh, RCCA, which is our you know, nickname or acronym. It represents the rural community colleges. Now you may say, "Well, what what's the difference?" Well, no, you have let's let's take a well, let's just take it right here in Arizona. You probably have heard of Maricopa Community College District. It's huge. <laughs> it is in Phoenix. It has ten colleges within it. Um, each of the colleges has uh, minimally 10,000 students in it. Okay, so that's Maricopa. You go down into the valley, and here's Phoenix, Tempe, Mesa, everything is there. And it's huge. And when you fly in, for those of you who have not um, you know, lived there or visited, just fly over it. And it's for hours, it seems like, that you're flying over all this populace. But that's the urban center. Um, they have, uh, the businesses, everybody is there. Um, the headquarters are there, et cetera. That very different dynamic there. You go an hour and a half out of there and you'll come to Yavapai College, which is in a town. Uh, we have two comprehensive campuses. Um, as I said, the county is the size of the state of Connecticut. Um, and our one town where one of the, the main campuses is a town of 41,000. <laughs> and on the other side of the mountain are little towns that are about seven, ten thousand, maybe, you know, very rural, very rural. And now where do you think the press bites are going to be? Um, it, even on the national weather map, if they show Arizona, they're going to tell you the Phoenix temperature. We're 20 degrees cooler. Um <laughs> Do we attract international or national headquarters? Typically not, but yet we have recruited some from Israel now here. Um, to uh, We're very much in the transition of agriculture. Agriculture used to be a lot of cattle here. That's gone now, um, except on the western side or eastern side of the county, on the other side of the mountain. Even that is changing because now we're into wine, wine producing. <laughs> um, so very much changing. The rural... Um, not only won't get the press bites, but our needs are different. And, and But the plus side, and I this is why I love rural community colleges, the plus side, um, you have the passion. You are in, you are expected to be so tied to your community and be accountable to them. 
and to help them. Um, I always used to kid the a wonderful chancellor of Maricopa, uh, Maria Harper Marinick. She was on every board possible. And she was, uh, we, uh, we nicknamed her the diva. Uh, she was wonderful. But I said, Maria, um, you're on every board and I'm on maybe two. And she goes, oh, my, my, my. And we were good friends. And she said, I said, but I don't even have to be on a board to be expected to be part of the solution. Um, if there's a situation in the town, we're expected to be part of the solution to that and to address it. Um, you're a partner, right? And she goes, you know, I'm not necessarily expected to do that. You know, it, and so the difference between the urban and the rural, the rural, you're part of that community. Um, as an example here, uh, Yavapai College probably uh, offers 60% of the cultural offerings for our community because we have a wonderful um, auditorium, um, concert hall, et cetera, here on the campus. And it's just, you just do things. We have the athletics, we have this. Uh, so you just are into the, uh, into the fabric of the, uh, of the community. Um, regular meetings with all the town mayors, um, individually and as a group, uh, you just, you're, you're expected to be part, as I said, part of the solution and the advancement of your area. So these are the rurals. You have the passion, you have the collaboration. Um, and I see that time and time again in the rural community colleges. So presently, our organization doing a number of things. One, the organization is looking at a college promise program, like I mentioned before, um, for rurals. What is the toolkit? What is the model? Because these urbans like Maricopa have foundations all over the place. They are dripping with so much money down there, and they could go ahead and possibly do it because they have these big foundations to be able to support them, not necessarily directly tied to the college. No, these are, you know, does um, Boeing want to help them? Does, you know, whatever, name the company that's down there, Amazon, et cetera. We don't have an Amazon up here to fund that thing. Um, and so if you're in a state like Arizona that doesn't fund education very well and you're out in the rural areas um, where are you going to get any extra funds to help do those wraparound services or pay for the tuition for students to be able to go on to college, um, except your own individual college foundation. And so we're developing a model right now to be able to do that and to be able to offer that to rural colleges. And it's, it's much more expansive than just that. It's, it's very exciting what we're doing with that. Another thing is that we're looking at efficacy, meaning how do we lobby um, at the state and the federal level? And you do it by regional. You have to do it by regional. Um, and how, because these rural areas, let's just take um, what Governor Vilsack said. Um, well, now he's Secretary Vilsack. Um, and he said he was originally mayor of Mount Pleasant, Iowa, a little tiny town in, in Iowa. And he said, you know, hold it, we've got to think bigger because where were a lot of his people coming from to work in Mount Pleasant? They were out in the country and they would drive in. Well, okay, how do we work together as a region? Uh, and we're looking at that um, a lot with broadband. How do we help that? Um, it's not, and COVID has really shown that, whether it's through telemedicine or lack thereof or online um, courses. We have too many students now with, co you know, because of COVID and even before having to drive 20 to 50 minutes to a Wendy's parking lot to pick up Wi-Fi. 
Um, the United States needs to have Wi-Fi across the whole United States so people have access to it. Sort of like what back in the 50, 40s and 50s with the rural electric um, movement, where there were so many homes without electricity at that time. So these are some things that we are very much into advocacy. And we'll, um, it, you know, we want to not only teach, but also be a spokesperson or a spokes entity at the state and the federal level. Uh, because people will go ahead, as I said, back to the weather map. They'll know the temperature in Phoenix, but they may not know the temperature up here in Yavapai County, <laughs> um, and it's markedly different. So how do you go ahead and help that um, and work together on those things? So our, our alliance, as I said, is national. Um, very proud of the board that we have, 14-member um, board that represents uh, colleges across the United States, um, and very vibrant. It's an organization that also has an annual conference and it's a small conference, but it's one that I found as president um, in my 15 years at you know, the two different institutions to be the most worthwhile conference I would go to because rural people share. They're used to partnering, et cetera. You could go there and pick up easily two to three things from others and bring them right back to your institution. Um, and you don't necessarily get that when you're at a 10,000, 15,000 um, person conference <laughs> um, and, and it was just wonderful. I, so I'm very honored to be president. Your organization also includes tribal colleges. Can you talk about that piece, please? Yeah, what we do, and there's a, a the tribal colleges, oh, I would encourage anybody, everybody, not anybody, but everybody to really look at the tribal colleges of what they are, um, who they are, the challenges that they have. Americans overall, in my opinion, really uh, almost to the point of turn their heads so that they don't see it. Um, and the tribal colleges have formed over the years. It's where, you know, let's say Diné uh, College up in the Navajo land. Um, they teach their students and it's, it's wonderful. But the challenge there, and again, let's just throw it to um, COVID. Whew. Um, talking about the impact of COVID on the Navajo Nation is terrible. Oh, it's so sad. And it's it, these people are in poverty. These people um, live in communal living often, and they don't have the medical support that many of us have. And so COVID just is going through that nation like crazy. And so here are these colleges, um, and they're very good colleges, but their challenges are different because they're supported totally different. Um, and you have students there that don't necessarily, uh, they may, they're not, uh, some of them may not be really emotionally supported by their parents to go to college. Um, some of them may not, uh, there's different challenges that they have to face from the poverty, et cetera. And yet I remember Janine Pease Windyboy, the president of the college at Little um, Bighorn College up in the Dakotas. Um, or was it in Montana? Oh, I want to say Montana now. Yeah. And she said she would always go to Montana State and University of Montana to see how her students were doing after they graduated from Little Bighorn. He said, they are the future of my tribe, of my nation. And she went and she would see them. Um, that was a wonderful gift that she gave to me um, because I would go down and see how our students were doing at Arizona State and U of A, et cetera, um, just see how they were doing, how we could prepare them better. But 
it's a matter of the challenges are there. Now, we have reached out to them. They were part of the college or part of the association um, when I was on the board of the association. Uh, I think um, the leadership at that time didn't do a good job of really encouraging them to stay. And we are now going out and making contact with them again um, to say, no, we need you. We want you. We have learned a lot from you. Um, I think sometimes people approach different nationalities, ethnic groups, et cetera, as far as, oh, here we are. We're going to help you. (laughs) That's not the right approach. (laughs) Um, It's what can we learn together? And that's what's so critical. Um, and just as Janine Pease Windy Boy gave me that uh, thought and um, gift, I, I appreciate it so much. But to see what's happening there, there's a book that's wonderful called, what is it? The Education of Little Tree, an old, old book. Um, talks about those Indian schools. They weren't necessarily good. <laughs> and that was the um, K through 12. Oh, and not understanding the culture at all, but it came from the federal government, et cetera. Well, the Indian, the tribal colleges are good, but how do we get the support for them? That um, the poverty is very high on those nations. So is that a piece that the Rural Community College Alliance is dedicated to addressing? Yes, yes. Uh, um, just and I, I would hope that, um, as I said, I want everybody to go visit. Um, and as you visit. Um, Hopi land here in Arizona. They're on three mesas. There's no water up on top of those mesas. They have to take water trucks up there. But this is where the people live. Um, How do you go ahead and help the Hopis? um, And how do you get to educate, et cetera, in their future? Um, And RCCA, it's rural. It's right there. (laughs) And so how do we go ahead and help them be successful? And how do we go ahead and, as I said earlier, earlier, or not earlier, but learn from them as well? Because they have faced many, many challenges and they are succeeding. But how can we help them succeed even more and help us succeed more? So RCCA is reaching out to them now and is saying, hey, new leadership, let's look at this together. In the few minutes we have left, um, what is your advice for listeners for uh, approaching their local community college and considering it as part of their own educational path? Well, I would say one, they probably have heard about their community college, if nothing else, on their tax bill. If it, if a community college receives any of their property tax from, or their funds from the property tax, they go, whoa, hold it. That is your college. Um, it's not mine. I used to always tell my staff, <coughs> I'd always tell them, this is like a campground. We're here. We're enjoying the campground. We will leave it a better campground than what we found it, no matter what the level is. And so we had our time in college as students. That's not why we're here. We are here to serve. And so I would say for a person who wants to know about the college, one, I, <coughs> excuse me, I should have gotten that drink of water. Anyway, I would go ahead and encourage them to go to the admissions office. Well, no, I'd, there's a step before that. I'd want, well, it's COVID right now. As soon as we get everybody vaccinated, walk around your college. You own it. Um, walk around it. See, that's how I decided how, which doctoral program I 
I would go, I visited four universities to see where I felt comfortable just walking around. How were people received? How did people interact? Did I feel comfortable? Could I learn? And there was one that will remain nameless that, yes, oh, it had all the great classification, you know, great ratings, et cetera. I felt like, oh, God, if they treat me this bad now, what are they going to be like once they have my money? Probably even worse. Um, and I loved Michigan State when I walked around that place. Um, and I loved Florida State when I looked at that, et cetera. But so I would encourage one to go down and see your college. Walk around it. See what it has to offer. And talk to people. And then go to the admissions office and say, I want a tour. I want to be able to talk to people. What do you have to offer? But think about what you want to do. Um, is there a particular area you want to study? That's fine. Is there, you have no idea? And let's say, no, I'd always talk to the freshmen at orientation who typically were more traditional age, 18, 19 years old. And I'd ask them, what are your majors? And half the hands would go up. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this, this, this. And I'd go, what about the rest of you? We aren't sure. And I said, you are the most honest people I have ever met or the undecided because you're going to be exposed to so much <laughs> and you're going to find your place. And I'm happy for those of you who have secure, you know, who have an idea of what you want. That's OK. That's good. Um, chances are you're going to change because in the first two years, typically students change majors at least twice. <laughs> so don't be afraid to be open to new experiences. You may not even know about them. Um, and, or you may have been like me who loved mathematics, but the good nuns told me that girls couldn't go into anything with math, that we weren't good at it. Um, well, I found out I was very good at it. <laughs> so, uh, and so, you know, visit your college. Uh, it's yours, as I said. Um, walk around it and then visit the admissions office and say, hey, I want to know more about it. What, it, what, it, what are your strengths? What, are you, what do you have here, et cetera? And then see about some career development. You know, take some courses. It's amazing what you could take. Uh, and that will come together. And it could be all ages. It can be, you know, as I said, technical education, which is not second class. I, I used to always kid people saying, my God, I'm going to end up cleaning their houses because these people make, as soon as they get out of, the, you know, out of their two years, 50,000, 60,000 right away. <laughs> um, so, you know, the old thing, do you want to be an employed plumber or an unemployed sociologist? Um, no, both are very important. But guess who gets paid extra when something happens to your plumbing in your house and it's on the weekend? Um, <laughs> so I go ahead and see where your strengths, where your comfort level is, what you want to do, and then you can pursue it right at your community college. And I love that you also talked about the undecided students, that community college is a welcoming place for that as well, because they can really embrace the exploration part of learning as oh, they yeah. as they consider what's out there. And there may, in the end, be a financial consideration. I, I got to do a year of liberal arts. Now I need to go um, into plumbing or be an electrician right. because I have I have financial obligations I need to really attend to right now. But that time of exploration is a huge part of what community colleges offer, isn't it? No, it is. And what's beautiful about it is that we had, uh, let's take Portland, Oregon. Um, and I worked at, you know, at the time at a private liberal arts and 
I then, you know, took the job at Portland Community College, and my husband worked at Portland State University um, in IT, et cetera. Well, what we found out, most people say, oh, what's your transfer rate? Which most people will assume is the transfer rate from the two-year college to the four-year. When do you transfer? Well, in Portland, we had three transfer rates. Who was transferring from the community college to the four-year to Portland State? How many from Portland State were transferring back to the community colleges? (laughs) And who was co-enrolled? People took classes at both at the same time. <laughs> so we're like, called it this transfer, you know, it's a very blended. Um, and we uh, even Embry Riddle here, which is has one of their campuses. These students will come over to our college to take a lot of their flight programs. <laughs> now Embry Riddle is known as a you know aeronautical for very good flight programs, but ours, I think, it's better. So <laughs> um, and people from where were we at? Was it? I guess it was in Iowa. They would go ahead and take their sciences from us at the community college from the private college because we had stronger faculty in science <laughs> than the liberal arts college up the street. So it's not second-class um, education by any means at a much lower rate too. So, <laughs> And it sounds like for students who need um, really engaged teaching in particularly in particular areas, if you're not going to be a scientist or a mathematician, but you do have to take a science and a math mm-hmm. class as part of your overall uh, yes. education plans at community college where the teacher is not actively distracted or engaged, mm-hmm. uh, however you look at it, in their research, but is there specifically because they enjoy teaching the nuts and bolts of math or of science to the students. Community college may be the place to go take some of those core classes where you know you need the teaching support. Yeah. Yeah. And people, we will do assessment of students' skills in math and English. We don't want them to fail. We don't. And so how we take that curriculum afterwards, let's say, uh, let's take math. Um, People may not, it it may have been years or they really didn't like math or they were scared of math, whatever. They had phobia about math. And they end up in there, they find out through the assessment that we do during orientation that, ooh, they've got to be in, quote, developmental or remedial math. You go, oh, I'm really stupid. No. And no, 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 no. <laughs> when was the last time you did your quadratic equations? <laughs> and you go, oh, shoot, it's a skill. That's all it is, is a skill. It's a different way of thinking, true, as well, but it's a skill. And so how do we brush you up on that to keep you going? There's a reason why quadratic equations are out there. Um, uh, One of the best indicators of success in med school is calculus. (laughs) And so how do you go ahead? um, You know, you you don't want students to feel stupid. So there's different models now coming out. Let's not strap them back into developmental ed for a whole year. No, let's co-teach that in a layup, et cetera, and, and and even in, you can find out through assessment what is specifically they're weak in. They may be just weak in fractions. <laughs> Teach them fractions and let them go on. Oh, <laughs> and so I'm real pleased with how people are accepting that, yeah, assessment is good, but I need to keep also going. So how do we as educators, professional educators, fine tune this? so that we're not wasting people's time or making them feel like they're really stupid um, and that they're not, they're going to get frustrated. No, uh, we want them to succeed. And there's some different models out there now that are fantastic. Um, and they're seeing, they're showing a lot of success. 
and completion, success rates in um, college, et cetera, that are markedly different than when I was in college. You sharing that made me recall a time when I was talking to a, a pediatric neurologist uh, not too long ago. I had this conversation, and when he was in college, he failed a very important math class. And so he got all the way to senior year. And if he did not retake and pass this math class, he could not apply to medical school. Yeah. So everything was riding on this one class. And it was the only class he had done poorly in. Yeah. This was the thing standing between him and medical school. And we know how the story ends because when I met him, he was a pediatric neurologist. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we know how capable and gifted this person was. Um, and it really struck me in his story and in, in what you're sharing here is it came down to when he retook it, he very strategically retook it with a math teacher who was known for a passion of teaching math. And that time, plus he also said developmentally, he felt as a pediatric neurologist, he's learned that the brain develops in, in sort of fits and starts, if you will, um, all the way, you know, through into into your 20s. And so what he had attempted at 19, when he reattempted it at 22, and with a different teacher, it brought those elements together. Um, and it was something that he felt, having had that experience, really blessed him because when people would tell him about ways they felt like a failure because of a particular subject that they hadn't done well in, he knew how that felt. And he knew that's not the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, when I went to college back in the seventies, um, we didn't know about learning styles <laughs> and we didn't know that people could be visual or they could be audio learners or they could be kinesthetic. I'm a person who is very visual, drives my husband nuts. He's audio. And, and I'm like, I have to write it down. I have to see it. And then I border on kinesthetic. I've got to use it. I've got to use it. Um, and he's like, why can't you just do it right away? You know, I told you how to do it. And I'm like, ah, that frustrates me. Huh? But then, yeah, but we know that now. So why don't we help students understand that it's okay. Then you get into how does the teacher teach? Um, and the teacher, the faculty now are keyed in to these different learning styles. And I'm so impressed with the quality of the faculty because that's their profession. Um I talking about math. Um, no, I was at I guess it was in Portland, where they refused to list the faculty names on the math classes and the scheduled courses. I said, Why not? Oh, we don't want them always picking so and so and so and so. I said, Stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> Put the name of the faculty in there. Because once you have a faculty member, especially in an area where many students don't feel comfortable. And they find out that they can learn from the Bobby Finnells, the Mary Smiths, whatever, and say, wow, all of a sudden it came, the light bulbs came on. You want to stay with that person. And <laughs> so I said, my word, they're scared to death of math. And they finally find somebody that they can really learn from. And they want to take the next class from them. And they're teaching it. My word, let them pick the class. They're going to, what's the alternative? Um, we don't list it. Okay, they end up in a course and they go, oh, my teacher isn't here. Oh, so I'm going to add and drop. So that's a lot more work on the staff's part. Just tell them from the beginning. <laughs> and we finally did that. And the students were so happy saying thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, your neurologist was right on board. <laughs> so. Yeah, so much is about finding the fit. And I feel that this conversation has really opened up that idea to listeners that, 
you can find the fit, whether it's taking a few of your courses at your local community college because those specific instructors or offerings are right for you or getting your two-year degree there or going back uh, to explore how you might change your career or restart your career. There's so many ways that community college can offer um, fit for student needs in a variety of ways. And I just thank you so much for coming on today and telling us about that. We've been talking to Dr. Penny Wills today, who's the president of the Rural Community College Alliance. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is the Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.